David Ferriero is our AOTIS Archivist of the United States. He's responsible for the vast holdings of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and also the everyday correspondence of presidents and public servants, everything from memos about regulation A45 subsection 2, to photographs, to, um, well, let's say maybe tweets from certain office holders that might have been sent today. The National Archives are not just a cool building in Washington, though, either. It's also the presidential libraries and several other facilities across the country under its purview. David Ferriero, welcome to the University of Minnesota. Honored to be here. Did you bring a copy of the unredacted Mueller report with you? I came close to bringing in the redacted, oh, the copy redacted version. Or at least page 40, which is my <laughs> favorite page of the report. So actually on that point, if the unredacted report is never released publicly, is it lost to history or is there actually a mechanism in place that it will be somewhere in the archive? There are already two copies that we can I can guarantee you will be available at some point. One in the Trump Presidential Library and the other in the Department of Justice. So the fact that it lived in the DOJ means that DOJ, DOJ means that someday it is a record, is a federal record, and will become part of the National Archives. Um, so when you see the news reports about will it or won't it, you're, you, you, you just sit back. You're like, hey, I got enough to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> you became archivist of the United States in 2009 a year in which I will point out that uh, Twitter was only celebrating its third birthday when you became archivist. So I think that's a little hint to this question, but how does the job and responsibility, how has that changed in those 10 years? We are now on um, 16 platforms, 16 social media platforms. When I was um, getting ready for my confirmation hearing, I, um, I, I was actually on the train coming from uh, New York to Washington and reading the New York Times and reading an article that the White House was letting an RFP for um, advice on how to handle their social media um, records. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not the archivist yet, but I'm saying to myself, <laughs> wait a minute, those are, that's the responsibility of the National Archives. That was my heads up moment to realize that the National Archives was not in the social media space. So this is 2009. Yeah. Um, as you said, Twitter was already alive. There are already lots of social media um, vehicles available that people were using. The role of the National Archives is to advise the White House and the executive branch about the records implications of the technologies that they're using. And if the National Archives isn't using those technologies, how on earth can we be providing that kind of advice? So within the first couple of months on the job, I discovered that there was a group of folks, staff, who were meeting in secret, um, who were really interested in social media. Um, they weren't allowed to form a committee, so they were meeting in secret. And I, I, I caught wind of this and um, walked into one of their meetings and they thought they were busted, you know. And, <laughs> but we sat down and um, talked uh, for an hour about the, the, the ideas that they had. Um, and I 
very much um, wanted to get the staff engaged in, in experimenting with social media, so authorized them at that point to um, experiment. Let's, so this was early on 2009 or probably early 2010. Um, I authorized them to buy 25 laptops, no, iPads and iPhones um, to, to experiment. So the next morning I got a call from my CIO, the, my then CIO, to say, I understand you want iPhones and iPads, and I said, isn't it exciting? We're going to be experimenting. And she told me, well, you know, we don't support that technology. Um, and the next call I got was from the acquisitions department. I understand you want, uh, yeah, yeah, isn't it exciting? We're going to be experimenting. And I was told that it would take 13 months to get, um, get that. So that was my introduction to working in the federal government um, and what I was up against in terms of, um, of becoming a little more flexible in the technology arena. In general, though, yes. when you say that you're going to archive, for example, all of the president's tweets, do you print out the tweets and put them in a book? How do you archive? You, you just, you just brush me up. Like, how do you used to, to do, do that, that yeah. for electronic mail? But no, no, we, we captured the electronic version of that. We were very fortunate to have a former president who spent eight years tweeting. So we got a lot of experience mm -hmm. in um, capturing tweets. It's a little more complicated with this administration because we have the personal account and the official account. Right. That, Real Donald Trump and POTUS, two separate tweet, tweet, Twitter accounts, and compounded by the fact that they're they're deleted, so we capture them before the deletion. And you, but the, but that you still have them. them. Yeah, you yeah. still have them. Uh, so, for example, just on that point, this is where we could go down a bunch of rabbit holes. So, Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, still has his own personal account. Yeah. Do you archive yeah. the tweets now that he's, he's no longer not president anymore? Well, I know I know that. Yeah. I just, just wasn't just sure. Let you know, just let you know. <laughs> the Secret Service protection <laughs> continues. I wasn't sure if the uh, archiving does. No. Your big goal, <laughs> your big goal here, as you've alluded to, has been really bringing the, both the National Archives and the federal government into the digital age in a way that you can not just have email and digital records, but to archive it. And that's never the thing we think about in that first meeting. Um, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> we were very fortunate um, during the previous administration to capture the attention of the president. Um, the thing that, that convinced me to move from New York to Washington was the fact that the, the new administration was serious about an open government initiative, transparency, collaboration, and participation. And they were convinced, the administration was convinced that the National Archives had an important role to play. Mm -hmm. So um, I made it, um, and that was the, for me, that was the tipping point in, in coming to Washington. And we were, we were so supported by that administration that the president issued a, uh, a directive to all of the agencies um, on managing, memorandum on managing government records in an electronic environment. First time the White House has gotten involved in record keeping since the Truman administration. That authorized me to work with OMB, Office of Management and Budget, to then set out some stakes, some milestones for the federal agencies about ending um, paper record keeping 
and migrating to all electronic record keeping, which is the process that we're moving through right now. So someday the records of an administration will exist only on servers? So I can tell you for the Obama administration, 90% of those records for that administration are electronic only. No paper equivalent. No paper. But that's good if I live here in Minnesota. I can just, maybe not today, but in theory someday. You will. I'll just find that's, them. That's right. They're online. Exactly. Right. Um, Which if, you can't do in the other presidential libraries. Right. You have to go to the library yep. and request those documents. But if I'm, if I'm two staffers of the Obama White House or even the Trump White House and we're sending emails back to each other about what we want for lunch that day, yeah. is that going to be archived? In the White House, yes. In the um, federal agency, no. Two sets of laws, Presidential Records Act, Federal Records Act. Presidential Records Act was created after the Nixon, President Nixon's attempt to claim his own records. Um, so a law was passed to create the Presidential Records Act, which, which spells out anything that's created in the White House is record. Um, unlike what happens in the agencies, which are covered by the Federal Records Act, so not everything is saved forever. Um, only about two to three percent record schedules are created, uh, disposition, how long they need to be kept in the agency, Processes when they get transferred. We're going through deciding what you Ex save. Exactly the same kind of record keeping that a, a university uses, a corporation uses. It's the same, same routine. And yet there have been stories, at least one that I saw from over the years, even in the Obama administration, where it was found or believed to have been found that Thousands of documents were lost, digital documents. First of all, how do you know? That, yeah, right. Right? That's right. And secondly, is it malicious or just in the normal course of deleting emails, <laughs> right? Don't we all delete emails? No, we don't all delete emails. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what you probably read about was the Bush, during the Bush transition, oh, the, yes. uh, like five million, three million email messages disappeared. Um, and they, this is just before I got there, and they, um, but they found them, so they, they weren't them. really, they weren't okay. really lost, yeah. So I used to work at... Unlike the, what happened with the uh, former Secretary of State and her email. Right. Do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> We're still looking for some of them. Because those would fall under the Federal Records Act, That's and right. so those should be those archived for the yeah. National Archives. Yeah. You know, I used to work at Minnesota Public Radio, a media company that has a very good audio archive. Like, yeah. all the stories they've done back in the 70s are on tapes and reel reels and they're digitizing them. But what we've done online, especially those early years, a lot of it's lost. And frankly, every time you update the website, there's new metadata yeah. and all that stuff. And a lot of stuff's lost. Websites, is that happening? Websites are a real problem. Is that happening yeah. at the federal government level? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We have a, um, you know, a, a new set of um, a new set of guidance for the agencies on harvesting uh, websites, but um, the technology isn't there to to capture them in a real time uh, manner. Uh, the the work that the Internet Archive is doing out in California is doing snapshots, random snapshots for a selected group of websites. It's not, you know, it's not the solution. It's not the solution. So how much of this transition that you're in to go to have these digital archives is also about changing the work habits you think? 
of the people, right? I mean, it seems like, it just seems like the yeah. example would be that yeah. over the decades, people would have gotten used to saving copies of paper and putting them into files, and every month you put that into the next office or the file cabinet, and then you have to change, right? You have to change that way of living, and now it's all digital. Right, and what we're, what we're the strategy that we're, we're taking is to work with the industry to create the tools that make it easier for people to do that to take the decision-making, the human decision-making out of the record-keeping because that's what interferes with um, getting what get we actually need. So that it's automatic. Exactly. So when I first started, we were using a um, tool called FileSurf, which is the, an archiving, electronic mail archiving tool, where in order to send an email message, I had to answer some questions like, is this a record, and what kind of record, and before every, I could send for it. For every email. Yeah. And so guess, so guess, what, guess what you do? You use your person. It's personal. not a record. Yeah. You, just, oh. you just declare it not a record, oh, so I you see. can send the thing, because it was getting in the way. And that's not the way you know, we want to support people who are supposed to be record keeping. So is it now that if I, even if I'm in the West Wing and I'm asking a, my colleague for lunch, and we send an email, it's just automatically, like I don't even think about it? Well, I can tell you just based on my own experience for 10 years reading some of those emails, it's not just what do you, let's go to lunch. It's um, let's go to lunch and talk about the draft memo that I just sent you. So it's a combination of mm -hmm. personal and business. Right, and there's no way to distinguish. You no, know, and, and I, I, I don't think we should. I don't think we should because in in a hundred years, if you want to know what the how technology was being used and what the communication patterns, social communication patterns were in the White House, you want that information. What are the stories that that tells though? We we, we hear you know uh, John Meacham will do a a book about Andrew Jackson and you know the the men of letters of the day, right? And they find these old written letters and other forms. What's the story that having lunch orders on email will be able to tell in a hundred years. It's not just lunch orders. I understand. <laughs> I understand, but, but it's capturing, right? I mean, if you're a man of letter in the 1700s, you don't spend the ink. Get over it. It's email now. <laughs> <laughs> I am over it. I'm just wondering whether historians will be able to, how do you call that? How do you go through? How do you find the thing you're looking for that tells the right story? Just like it's a new way of communicating, it's a new way for historians to be doing their research. And that's, what, that's what's so exciting about what we're doing with the Obama uh, Library, right. is creating a whole new model for, for providing access, but also working with uh, the historical community to think about what does that mean in terms of research? How does one do research in an all-digital archive? David Ferriero is with us here at the University of Minnesota, the archivist of the United States, and I'm really glad you brought up President Obama's library, which will be in Chicago. And it, I, I want to go through this a little bit because there, you might have actually seen a news story last year with the headline, and I, this didn't tell the whole, that the headline was that the Obama library was not going to follow previous National Archives protocol. And if you just read the headline, it leaves you with the impression that they're not going to have anything archive, but that's not what happened. No, there, that was a, it was a New York Times fake news article. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that out loud. Um, it was not a fake news article. It was not, didn't have all the details that it should have had. And mm -hmm. in fact, 
if you go to, and, and in fact, the foundation, the Obama Foundation wrote a letter um, to the New York Times, which is on the Times site, also on our site. We've got an FAQ, archives.gov. If you go to archives.gov, you can read, um, keep up to date what's going on with the planning for the Obama um, Center. Um, it gave the impression that the Obamas had decided to keep their records, that right. they, were, they were controlling the right. records, and that's not at all what we're doing. As it did not, and it didn't make the point that 90% of those records were electronic, so that, that piece was missing, missing also. So in the, in the conversations with the Obamas about what their presidential entity would be, they opted for instead of building a physical facility to take the money that they would have spent on the building and digitize the rest of the collection. So that 5% of the stuff that isn't mm -hmm. um, in paper form now will be, um, in fact, we're, we're um, about to announce a contract for that, that piece of the, the operation so that when that library opens, we will be able to provide full online access to all the records as much as we can, given you know what um, the um, confidentiality and stuff right. around some of the records. Yeah, exactly. Classified content. But there, you, you mentioned the money used for that. You're talking about the money that would have been used for the portion of the building physical that would house the physical records. Right. But the, there's still going to be a museum. There's still there will a be a, there photos. Will be and, a yeah. Museum that will be run by the foundation, not by the National Archives. We will loan them artifacts, since there are like eh, probably 200,000 artifacts, gifts of state that mm -hmm. are part of the, the records of that administration. We will loan them for exhibits. How is what you just described for what will be the Obama Library in practice, day to day, either as a tourist Mm -hmm. Going to visit that versus going to the Kennedy Library or the Johnson Library. How will that be different for tourists? Or, and then how will it be different for researchers, if at all? Will the experience for researchers, be different? For researchers, it will be different because you don't have to go there to do your research. You can do your research from wherever you are. For tourists, it's going to be exactly the same. Um, it'll be more high-tech at, at that. Each one of the presidential libraries gets more high-tech because of the the amount of electronic information, but the museum experience will be similar to the other 13 presidential libraries. What's your favorite presidential library? Uh, you're not allowed to have a favorite. They're, yeah, no. they're like your children, they're all your favorite? Yeah. I grew up in Boston, uh, JFK was my first presidential library, mm -hmm. it still um, you know, uh, has a soft spot. Yeah, for me. I don't think a lot of people here in Minnesota might know that the nearest presidential library here is in Iowa, Herbert Hoover. West Branch, Iowa. It's actually a little really nice. cornfield. It's a little. It's, a, it's not so as wonderful. big as the other ones. It's but. so wonderful. Each one of them is, you know, is really um, a, a unique experience. The uh, Ronald Reagan Library, I think, is probably the over the top, built in Simi Valley, you know, overlooking a, um, a valley towards mm -hmm. an avocado fields, has a Air Force One and a pavilion um, attached yeah. to it. Is the, is the tavern uh, from Ireland that President Reagan stopped, his family came from. He stopped in that tavern to have a beer. Um, they, the tavern was for sale and the foundation bought it and shipped it to California. 
<laughs> and now you can have a beer under the wing. You of, can. Of you can get a Guinness <laughs> yes. under Air Force One. Under Air Force One. <laughs> you know, all of this is to say that in addition to what researchers do, in general, we have freedom of information laws in this country, both at the federal level, which you work with the most, and each state is different, too, for its own state records. How effective are they, and or do they need their own updates when you talk about this digital world, do, do freedom of information laws writ large need an overall? I think it's, it's bigger than freedom of information. It has to do with um, what I would describe as overclassification to begin with, that there's too much information that's um, deemed secret, which shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier for the the, um, the 2,500 uh, original classifiers, the people who are authorized across the executive range to actually classify, it's easier for them to, to, to um, market classified rather than going through the detail of... Um, so, we, so what we need to do, and I, uh, we have a public declassification information board that advises the president and Congress on issues around classification. They have recommended to the president a two-tier uh, classification system. Just it's either secret or, or uh, top secret or secret, um, and to reduce the number of um, classified con uh, does, documents. Does, so dealing with that yeah. should help with the freedom of information thing. Mm -hmm. But also, um, we, we have within the National Archives created um, two th in 2009 the Office of Government Information Services, which is the FOIA ombudsman. Mm -hmm. So any member of the, of the public, um, lots of journalists who are having trouble with an agency getting their FOIA request dealt with can work with my staff on their behalf to intercede to cut down on the number of, of law case legal uh, cases and also to speed up access to, to information. So that OGIS group also does um, training for FOIA officers. Each federal agency has a FOIA officer and a FOIA staff dealing with, um, with FOIA requests. What, do you have any role when something is classified and becomes unclassified, do you have any role that gives you leverage on whether to deem it unclassified, or are you just the, the cog in the wheel that formally unclassifies it? I am it? not a cog. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of 2009, President Obama created the National Declassification Center um, within the National Archives with a mandate to review about 400 million pages of uh, classified records going back to World War I. And what it did, unfortunately, didn't give me the authority to make that decision. It gave me the opportunity to convene the original classifiers to review their work. And that process, that, that assignment, um, gave us the opportunity to create a process to streamline review so that we um, don't get into those backlog situations again. So the directive gave me three years to complete that work, which we did. 400,000 pages in three years, and we released, we had two criteria, weapons of mass destruction and national security were the only two criteria by which a document could remain classified. We, re, uh, we reviewed the 400,000 pages and released 85% um, of those have gone to the open shelves. They're now available. Yeah. 
We live in a world where um, I think there are people in this room who would worry that facts don't matter anymore. I'm going to choose not to believe you. Um, so what's the point of having archives in this world? The archives was created, and this, it was Fr uh, Franklin Roosevelt who, um, who signed the legislation that created it, and he was a passionate believer in access to government information that the American people needed to be able to hold their government accountable and learn from the past. And the only way to do that was to have access to the records. Speaking of FDR, a few years after that bill was signed, he spoke at the dedication of his own presidential library, and he said this, to bring together the records of the past and house them in buildings where they will be preserved for the use of men and women in the future, a nation must, must believe in three things. It must believe in the past, it must believe in the future, and it must believe in the capacity of its own people so to learn from the past that they can gain in judgment in creating their, their own, own future. future. Yeah, it's one of my favorite quotes. Where did you find that? Uh, <laughs> probably on the internet somewhere, right? <laughs> on one of those websites that won't get archived when they update it. Do we live in that world anymore? Oh. We're trying, we're trying, yeah. It's still, um, you know, we're still, we're still collecting the good stories and the bad stories. You know, it's not like in some other countries where, where there's a purging of, of certain kinds of records. You know, we collect the good stories and the bad stories. What's in this, in this big conversation that we're having today for you? What is the biggest challenge facing the entity responsible for keeping our records in our archives for, for future generations? It has to do with the, um, the poor state of the information technology infrastructure of our federal government. It, um, the technology infrastructure is not um, where it should be. It's not as robust as it should be. It reminds me very much of the state of universities before enterprise, the approach to enterprise computing um, where every faculty was allowed to go off and build their own thing or buy their own thing and then come to the library when they, when, when they didn't know what to do with it anymore. Um, no um, enterprise approach to, to technology and that's the government is just coming into, into that arena now. Does that happen free of political arguments over budgets and shutdowns, or does that need congressional approval? Oh, it's congressional approval, yeah. 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 Is this a bipartisan area that you're talking about? Yeah. Yep. Well, we found one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, um, my oversight committee, um, I had some really tough folks um, in the, before the, the Democrats came into power in the, on the House. Daryl Issa was the chair of my oversight committee, and then Jason Chaffetz, you know, they're two, you know, bulldogs, um, but really, under, got, really understood this and got the, the, um, the importance of technology. How well do, uh, or should, federal records and each of the 50 states and their records talk to each other or somehow interact? And I don't, I don't know if that's a useful use of our time, but, but does that happen? Um, we are, we have very close relationships with something called the Council of State Archivists, COSA, 
um, and then there are a couple of Kosovo folks in the room. Um, these are the state archivists, and they meet regularly, but I meet with them also once a year. My staff meets with them, so we do a lot of um, sharing of best practices. We also, within the National Archives, have a small grant-making arm, the National Historical Preservation and Records Commission, which gives grants to um, local uh, state archives, local historical collections, non-federal government collections to do processing and digitization. Um, COSA, the state archivists have a have a stake in those um, those grants also. But the, the but state, each of the states, you know, has a, have a different set of legislation about what's what's record and what's not record. Yeah. Most of them don't have um, the, the from, for instance, the governor's records aren't aren't theirs, aren't part of the archives in many states. Aren't the, they aren't state-owned? They, state they belong owned. to the governor. Right. I think that's how it is in Minnesota, because the governor can choose yeah. to donate his or her papers to the, usually the historical society. I, I see some people from the historical, do I have that right? Is that, do I have? Are they, are, they are public? No matter what. So we have state good. archives, everybody. Very good. See, no, thank you for that. Thank you. So, it is, so we're different. We are different than what he just said. All right. So we. Thank you. We just got a, an update That's from great. the audience here as you, were, as you were talking about this. As we talked to David Ferriero, the archivist of the United States, 10 years running, um, just opened a new exhibit at the building in Washington, the National Archives building, about as we um, march headlong into 100 years since women uh, gained the vote in the United States. What is, what is that exhibit? What are we going to see if we go to... Washington and see that. You're going to see the checkered story of how we got to where we are and who was excluded, you know, who wasn't part of that um, march in Washington, who had to march at the back of the group, you know, um, the, the struggle that um, still exists for equal citizenship. Um, the, the fact that African-American women, Native American women were excluded in the early days. Um, using original records um, and uh, documents, film, and interactive media, the, the goal of the exhibit is to educate especially uh, young women about what they take for granted in terms of what rights they think they have that 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 they were born with that their mothers grandmothers great grandmothers had to fight for and to leave them with um, some sense of their responsibilities then going forward you can leave as you leave the exhibit you go in. You can, you have the opportunity to go into um, a laboratory where we have got um, you, you, where you are connected to registering to vote in where, whatever state you're from. So anyone, any state that allows online registration, voter registration, you can do that right there at the at the end of the exhibit. After you've been inspired exactly. by the exhibit, how much of your job is? I mean, is is this? 
and I don't mean this derogatorily, but is the showcase side of the job where you put together an exhibit to educate people if they're just tourists coming through Washington or presidential libraries, right? How much of the showcase, for lack of a better term, is uh, the job versus literally just being the warehouse, me metaphoric sometimes, where someone like a researcher can just come in as needed or when needed, you know, is, is the showcase part of the job to educate the masses more important than? It's not either or. It's not, it's, it's not either or. The, the exhibit program is to educate people about who we are and what we do. We're, you know, we're like the best kept secret in, in town. Uh, lots of people don't understand that um, the, the records are um, collected and, and, and um, important and um, so one of the ways of doing that is having, having these exhibits all around the country. Um, and it's this balance between the research enterprise and uh, the um, education. Yeah. The exhibit program is part of our education program. I believe there was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence that came to Minnesota a few years ago. Would, would that have been through the National Archives or no? No, he's shaking his head. We don't, we don't, we don't loan the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> I'm sure it was real. Well, what is the coolest thing? We get a call about once a week from someone who's found a Declaration oh, of Independence. Oh, they have? Yeah. Well, that's good to know. What's the coolest, you said it's the best kept secret. What's the coolest thing in the National Archives that people don't know is there? Four letters that a kid from Beverly, Massachusetts wrote to President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and President Johnson. You? You wrote those? <laughs> so did you go find them on your first day on the job? No, it's really funny. When I had my first meeting with the director of the presidential libraries, they went around the room and introduced themselves and the director of the Kennedy handed me a copy of a letter that a kid wrote to the president asking him for information about the proposed Peace Corps and it was a letter from me. Did, did you get an answer? No. Nope. So you didn't join the Peace Corps? Nope. It was a stunning moment because I, I remembered being interested in the Peace Corps but I had forgotten you know, writing that letter. But more stunning was watching the faces of the other 12 directors because they were, oh my God, how am I going to top this? <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, you know, two weeks later, the Eisenhower called the son that they found two letters from me to President Eisenhower. And then when I was at the LBJ, they handed me this copy of a letter that I wrote to him congratulating him for signing the Civil Rights Act. What did you write Eisenhower about? Uh, I needed, I wanted a picture suitable for framing. <laughs> Did you get it? Yeah. You got a picture? Yeah. yeah. So anyone who writes a letter. Those, that's correspondence. That's, that's those, correspondence. Those are records. Yeah. If I um, am part of some uh, advocacy group and they send an email that says, click here to send a letter to the president or send a letter to the speaker mm -hmm. to say, do this or yeah. do that, those get, Yeah. those are in there too? Yep. Yep. The Nixon tapes are in the National Archives? Yep. Kennedy assassination um, mm -hmm. records. Mm -hmm. Area 51, what can you tell me? Right. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but I can tell you, um, 
I told you that the President um, Obama created the National Declassification Center, and, and it was important for us to, to figure out if we're going to get serious about going through this backlog, what's most important? What are people looking for? So I hosted two public meetings in Washington for people to come and talk to us about what's, what's most important in terms of establishing priorities in this backlog. And I hosted each of these meetings, and they were exactly the same meeting. And the room evenly split between the Kennedy assassination conspiracy and UFOs. Really? Because there has been, hasn't there been? There's been declassification of so UFO about, stuff about and the a assassination. year after that, so this is, which is probably about three years ago now, a U, uh, an Air Force top secret report was declassified. Sometime in the 50s, we contracted with a Canadian firm to build a flying saucer. To proactively. So we have this, this secret document that we declassified. It has the schematic, the, the, the plan for it, and the report of its test voyage. And so during its $10 million, this thing cost. And during its maiden voyage, it rose four feet off the ground and crashed. <laughs> Or so you would have us believe. <laughs> yeah. Why, um, why do we have a copy of the Magna Carta in the National Archives? Shouldn't the British Library have that? They have one, two. So we have one just... We, have, we actually have the 1297 version, the only one that was ever implemented. Why? And well, well, when you um, live across the street from David Rubenstein, and he owns it, he, um, it actually belonged to Ross Perot. So it was in a British family forever. And sometime in the late 90s, the family decided that they needed the money, and they sold it. Ross Perot bought it and deposited it at the National Archives, and then decided he bought it for like $1.3 million. And um, at some point decided, uh, early 2000, sometime that he wanted the money. So he uh, gave it to Sotheby's to sell. David Rubenstein was on a plane coming back to Washington from somewhere and going through his mail and discovered that it was being auctioned at Sotheby's. And so he was concerned about it leaving the United States because the Declaration of Independence, the language, mm -hmm. um, much of the language comes from Magna Carta. So um, David, um, next day, flew to New York, never been to an auction before, walked in. Um, it was estimated to go for somewhere between 30 and $45 million. And David got it for $23 million. And Fire sale there at, uh, at Sotheby's. And um, brought it back to the National Archives, paid for its encasement. Um, it's encased exactly the way the Declaration of Independence is. So that's so a personal a, donation? Yeah. I would suspect that's a vast, vast minority of the collection is personal donations. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. What, what would you want? What, what, what do you want from my collection? At that's home? what, um, what, what, what. For all the people here in the room, like. Know, Maybe people, I've got something. People know. often ask me that, and 
I don't, you know, I don't mean to be rude or flip, but I have enough, I have enough <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you heard the figures, um, you know, yeah. it's, we have a lot of stuff. Um, uh, final question, and then I'm going to open it up to, I have one more question here, and then I'm going to open it. So if you have a question, um, get ready to raise your hand, and we have some people with some microphones. We need the microphone, obviously, so everyone can hear it. So get your questions ready. There's a librarian of Congress and an archivist of the United States. What's the difference? One is an African-American woman. <laughs> and the other is a Vietnam veteran. That's right. Um, the library, uh, there's a lot of confusion about the National Archives. A lot of people think it's one of the Smithsonian's or the, that it's a, an arm of the Library of Congress, and it's not. The, the National Archives is responsible for government records, anything created by the federal government. The Library of Congress is everything else. They got an earlier start than the National Archives, so that some of the early stuff which might come to the National Archives is at the Library of Congress. Oh, here's a good story. Yeah. The uh, National Archives opened its doors in 1934. It was designed by John Russell Pope. The rotunda was, was developed specifically to hold the charters for freedom. A tabernacle was created to hold the Declaration of Independence. The um, charters were, um, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were at the Library of Congress at that point, and the Librarian of Congress refused to give them up. Mm. So it wasn't until Harry Truman, 1952. That you didn't get them? It didn't come until 1952. What do you do, call up the Librarian of Congress and say, do it? No, the, libra the librarian died, and it was a new librarian. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we waited them out. <laughs> so in great pomp and circumstance, the uh, military procession lined in lined Constitution Avenue, tanks and military vehicles, they brought the charters up the steps into the rotunda. And Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress, is still bitter about it. And she told me recently in public, and you sent tanks up to take them. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have the technology, assuming the technology will keep getting better, to keep those original parchments safe for 300 more we years? We hope so. We hope so. It's, we, we are using state-of-the-art technology, we monitor them um, constantly. Um, they are encased in you know, the best possible, mm -hmm. but it's something that, that we want to you know, make sure we're paying attention to. Is there any protocol that would allow, I don't know what the right term is, but for touch-ups? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, William Barton Rogers was the president of MIT, and when he left the presidency, he became a, the chair of a commission to investigate the state of deterioration of the Dec Declaration of Independence. And this was all triggered by some ink salesman in Philadelphia who had this cunning plan to retouch the, um, the Declaration of Independence. So they formed this, the Congressional Commission to investigate, and um, um, they decided to not to touch it, leave it alone. Could, that's, could, we, could we touch it up in some No. I'm just wondering. <laughs> I don't know. No. It hasn't. No, you have to stabilize it. 
So we have, um, you know, it, um, Samuel Johnson decided that he wanted to have copies made of it, and so he hired Mr. Stone to do a copper plate. They made a copper plate, and we have um, a copy of the original uh, from uh, on parchment from that copper plate. Another gift of David Rubenstein. Mm -hmm. he, um, David has three of those. He's quite a collector. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> so we have a question. So um, we have a microphone coming. So uh, this gentleman, yeah, yeah, stand up and uh, wait for the microphone, and then introduce yourself and uh, go for your question. Hi, I'm Steve Lick, a devoted fan of yours. Uh, I'm wondering um, if you could tell us a story that would illustrate why it's important to keep the actual physical objects beyond just them being a talisman or a magical <laughs> object. I'm thinking with the advance in technologies, are there things that we've learned now and we only could have learned because we have these physical objects? Kind of like if the trout or Turin was, uh, Turin was analyzed by modern, you know, could you give us an example of well, for, for textual material, um, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the ability to, to see, actually, the original um, um, strike-through and reworking of language. The um, FDR's um, speech on Day of Infamy is a good example. That Infamy was originally history, or this day in history, rather than infamy. So he crossed it out yep, and wrote yeah, infamy. Yeah. So being able to to see that creative process in in and it's the same in literature and, and anyone who has a manuscript collection, you know, pay, pays attention to that kind of thing. Something that's lost in you know in the electronic world usually because versions aren't aren't necessarily kept and you don't have that same kind same kind of experience. So uh, over here. Oh, 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 go ahead. Hi. Um, I was terrified to hear you say that all of the Obama records are going to be digitized. Um, anybody that has a five and a quarter inch floppy disk sitting someplace that can no longer be read um, recognizes that there are things called bit rot and other kinds of technological obsolescence. Is there any attempt to think about the backward compatibility issues that are going to be attendant on trying to keep digital records going forward? We can read a piece of vellum from the 1500s. Um, we can't look at a disk from 10 years ago. Yeah, it's something that we are concerned about and building systems to ensure that we can migrate those, that content over into new technologies as they are created. As I said, 90% of those records were born digital. There's, there is no paper equivalent. Are you, um, do you have like a room with like floppy disk readers in case someone, like the <laughs> old technology, like radio stations have old real re real players. No, we've actually been migrating those, the content. It's the, we're not saving formats. Formats, No, I understand. You're right. the content. You gotta get the stuff off. Exactly, and that's what we're focused on. And it's not, we're not alone in this. Um, Large university libraries have the same kind of issue. Our international partners have the same kind of issue. There are a lot of people who are working on this. Uh, okay, over here, go ahead. Yep. Pete McGee, um, is there any possibility that some catac cataclysmic event could 
damage a lot of energy sources in the United States and cause a lot of uh, loss of these documents that are, that are saved electronically. So we are um, storing in the cloud, um, cloud which is replicated in several different places. So um, that's, that's our strategy. All, all within the continental United States. But it is possible. That'll be a bad day for you. Yes, if that were to happen. Yeah, but you're, you're confident in the fail-safes and the safeguards that you have and the backups that you have. And I don't understand yes. all the technologies, yes. obviously, but you're, you feel confident yep. in that. Hi. Uh, some local governments, in particular in Minnesota, have a deliberate policy of deleting all of their emails within six months or a year or two years. How frequently and with what uh, rigor does the archives uh, gather up all of the electronic records that it's responsible for? So, uh, um, as I said, the, the way the process works is that um, record schedules are created, and this is a, a cooperative project process between my records appraisal staff and the records management staff in each agency. So the record schedule describes the kind of records that are created, how long they need to be kept in the agency for business purposes, what two to three percent of those records are of legal or historic value that need to get transferred to the National Archives for permanent retention, and the point at which, at how many years do they stay in the agency before they're transferred. So those are the schedules that are created in whether, regardless of format. So that's the, that works for paper, photos, and electronic mail. The same kind of schedule is used. Which is different in the West Wing versus the agencies, as you noted. Because Say that again. The, different in the West Wing yes. versus the agencies. Yeah, right. But who makes the determination on those 2 to 3%? Of course, I... I it's I, a joint process between my records appraisal folks and the records manager of the agency. And these are record schedules are reviewed every five years. Do we have... I'm not Hello? Oh, there we go. Yeah, go ahead. I can't stand up easily. Um, considering this wonderful world we're in of fake news and fake stories and fake records, do you ever have a way of validating that you are storing fake versus real? Do you ever <laughs> worry? The question was whether in the era of fake whatever, fake news and records, is it possible that we're just going to get some fake stuff that gets it through? It is possible, sure. It's possible, but, but that's not different today than it was, you know, 50 years ago. The, you know, the, whether the, the veracity of the information uh, is more complicated now because of you know um, how easy it is to to manipulate yeah. uh, information. Um, I agree. Um, the, 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 one of the contributing issues is that the 